Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because one of my biggest influences throughout my research career is on the podcast today. I welcome Dr. Frank Gilliam, who does amazing work on plant community dynamics, especially how they relate to things like acid rain or nitrogen deposition. Dun, dun, dun. Nitrogen, we think it's great in an agricultural setting. More is usually better for plants, but in ecosystems like forests, it can throw a real wrench in the gear and really change species dynamics. And Dr. Gilliam has a fascinating career studying those things. So I don't want to keep you from it any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Frank Gilliam. I hope you enjoy. Right, Dr. Frank Gilliam, it is an honor to have you on the podcast. I have been a fan of your work for years. You have highly influenced my own research, but for those that haven't read anything that you've put out, how about we start off with an introduction? Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Okay. Uh, my name is Frank Gilliam. I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, and it's a good place to start because I really give my parents a lot of credit for how, how I came to, to be a plant ecologist, I was long interested in nature, just hiking around. Very fortunate to be, to grow up in Lexington, Kentucky, well, Lexington not itself, but that part of Kentucky was surrounded by natural settings. So state parks and nature preserves, these kinds of things. And they always indulged my interest in, in nature, even at a really young age. Nice. Uh, so uh, I went to, uh, to uh, Vanderbilt as an undergraduate. And to be honest with you, at that point, my exposure to biology, uh, it began as kind of a, an interest uh, in ninth grade. Hmm. Uh, that's the first time I took an actual biology class. Everything else has been science with a, you know, with a little bit of biology here and a little bit of geology here or whatever. Sure. Uh, but, but in ninth grade, which at that time was called junior high school. It was not middle school. <laughs> and so um, uh, it was a combination. I think the teacher was really good. Yeah. Uh, but it was also the book that we used was, uh, was a new curriculum that had different textbooks for different areas of focus. And this oh. was called the green version. And it had, a real, it had a real environmental and ecological orientation to it. Huh. And I think it just it just somehow resonated. And what I also remember are these two film strips. This is a long time ago, <laughs> in the '60s, and they were truly film strips where she had to thread the the, the movie film into this nice. projector, which <laughs> had a little soundtrack and all that. And um, there were two of them. One was uh, the importance of fire in the prairie. Well, lo and behold, you know that's what I did for my first postdoc was. Uh, was to do uh, ecological studies of fire at Kansas Prairie. Nice. Another one was so, not something I've done direct research on, but I'm certainly aware of, and that's sort of the, we call it hydrarch succession, where you, know, you have the filling in of freshwater systems, the, the transformation into terrestrial systems. And there was this really cool film strip about how, how all that worked. Huh. And I just, I was riveted by that. Now, Again, you know, the, the word ecology had long been coined, but it didn't get thrown about much. It was not a very common word. Uh, but um, 
But that, as I said, quite, uh, quite connected with me. In 12th grade was the second year of biology, and I'm lucky that <laughs> it didn't turn me off completely because the teacher was horrible. Oh. It was this old dude. He would continually repeat himself, and he would tell these, these horribly old yarns about what it was like growing up in rural Kentucky and stuff. And nothing wrong with that, but, but that's what he did. That was the yeah. substance of his, of his class time. And, uh, and so that, 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 I took a little back step on that one. I didn't, it didn't turn me off entirely. Uh, but, uh, cause I knew I wanted to major in biology. Sure. I just didn't know what that meant because most <laughs> of high school biology is either zoology or human biology. Right. So my first, I'll never forget. was one of those true, you know, light going on moments or whatever, where it was my very first botany class at Vanderbilt university. And I knew I was going to be a biology major. I just thought I would be more zoology than, than botany. And it was just, it was the very first lecture in, in my, in my botany class. I said, this is amazing. <laughs> this is cool to be talking about plants. I don't know what it was, but again, a lot of it's the professor. So this, yeah. uh, Dr. Dean P. Whittier, I remember him really well. He got his, his, uh, PhD at Harvard. He was from the, he was from New England. Oh, nice. And he talked like this. He talked about the Gadden strawberry with his really New England accent, Gordon <laughs> Strawberry, Gordon Strawberry. I love it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and um, and that was it. I never looked back. Wow. Yeah, I was ne- never interested in zoology huh. from that point. Then it was other professors there um, that got me more more into ecology, and in particular, who became my advisor was none other than Elsie Quarterman, who had gotten her PhD from uh, Henry Osting at Duke way hmm. back in the, like the forties or so. And her, her friend and colleague at that time was Dwight Billings. And of course, uh, uh, Dwight Billings, well-known in the field. And he kind of was like, not just the father of, of the field, but so many can, can direct their lineage to, uh, to yeah. the Billings lab at Duke. So I took a lot of his classes and we got to be really good friends. It turns out he really liked opera and I was really into opera because my brother, um, is a is a musicologist huh. and his his um, expertise is opera. Wow! Uh, ironically, so so when I was at Duke for my PhD, he was at Harvard for his PhD and ended up at Duke as a professor. So we wow. have this kind of Duke <laughs> connection. Okay, I'm getting a little far afield. No, but, no, it's awesome. Um, but the uh, <laughs> um, but it was Dr. Quarterman's her classes in plant ecology that that I just. I just took that hook, line, and sinker, and you know I was always going to be a paleontologist after that. It was just fascinating <clears throat> what 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 I learned from her. That's fantastic, and a really cool story about how sort of the bonding of different interests, but the influence of people early on or at different stages sure. can really just kind of shove you down. And you know, I dabbled. I started as zoology, and then realized. <laughs> when people started talking about plants, the way they talk about animals in terms of their ecology, their behavior, their natural history, mm-hmm. go, Oh, they're doing even cooler stuff. So sometimes it just takes those little tiny tidbits yep. to push you over the edge. Sure. Absolutely. And so it was certainly anything but a linear, you know, path. <laughs> um, it uh, took different iterations and, and so forth. But uh, in reality, as well known as Duke university is, 
I had not heard much about it growing up in Lexington. Um, it, it, it was not even on my radar for hmm. colleges to go to when I was in, uh, in high school. Um, and so it was because of taking uh, classes with Dr. Quarterman and her continual references to do because <laughs> she got her PhD there. And that was, a, you know, that was a real hotbed for plant ecological research uh, going way back to the 30s and so forth. Uh, that uh, and she said, well, why don't you, if you want to go to grad school, why don't you apply there? So I got there um, in, a, in a master's program. And to be quite honest, I, I wasn't sure how much I could handle of more, you know, of more being at a university. So I thought that two, two more years getting a master's was going to be enough. Yeah. But toward the end, I started thinking, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe uh, something, something could happen uh, beyond that. I actually was hoping to, to teach at the yeah. college level with a master's degree. I was very naive to think that I could do that. Now those are, those options are there. Sure. I just did not have the wherewithal or the, the insight to know how to pursue that. Plus right. if you just have a master's, you're going to be competing with people who have PhDs. So yeah. uh, I was really, I was, again, really naive about how, uh, you know, how academia worked. I just happened to be back at Duke. Uh, I had started a, an experiment for a class I was taking uh, that I had designed to keep going after I left if somebody wanted to take it over. And so somebody did. And that person actually got got her master's thesis based on the experiment, uh, which was kind of cool yeah, to know. Nice. But when I went back, I went back to Duke to, to, I don't know what it was. It was some of my old buddies from my master's time. Uh, one of them was getting married. So we were all in the wedding. We all were back at Duke, kind of like a kind of like a big chill moment, kind of like a yeah. reunion type thing. And I stopped by my professor's uh, office to see how the experiment was going, and he said it was going really well. And and he said, "So, what are you what are you going to do next?" Uh, you know, I said, "I don't know. I'm I'm trying to maybe get some teaching positions or so." He says. What do you think about getting your union card? Is what he called it. The union <laughs> card was a PhD. I said, oh, I think I know what that means. No, I'm not interested. It's, huh. it's six years being at, in a college. It's just that's enough. Yeah. And then I walked away, immediately thinking, Wait a minute, was he offering me a, <laughs> a PhD position, or was, uh, or was that just a suggestion? Sure. And I walked away not really knowing. And then, then again, I I did my spinning wheels, doing this, doing that. And eventually um, uh, he got back in contact. And so um, I ended up applying, I ended up going there. And I worked with, wow. he, this Dr. Ralston was a soil scientist, um, but I've worked also with Norm Christensen. And it's actually uh, Norm who kind of pointed the direction to what I've been going into my entire career, which is the focus on the herb layer. I think that's probably the work that you were you were talking about yes uh, earlier well i just i have to give him total credit for huh. that um, i was i was initially basically interested in fire ecology fire had fascinated me ever since again ever since of being a small kid i wasn't a pyromaniac i didn't like <laughs> to burn things down but i was really interested in the idea of fire sure and again I, i'd seen this film strip as a ninth grade uh, uh biology student about the importance of fire in prairies. And I thought, this just makes so much sense. Bingo. And, and so um, uh, 
I, di I didn't really know what the options were, but th there was this uh, well-funded study in the lower coastal plain of South Carolina at the Santee Experimental Forest. And of course, pine forests are heavily uh, dependent upon fire. And uh, so he suggested, well, why don't we look instead, because already people, it was a long-term study, so several PhD students had, had come out of that, mm. uh, but nobody had looked at the herbaceous layer. Huh. And so uh, he suggested that I, that I look into that. That was like a piece of the puzzle that had not been added. And I thought, okay, sure, let's give that a try. He showed me a little technique, and that's basically, that was the, that was the not the only thing in my dissertation, but that was one of the main ones. Wow. Um, so that's... I guess that that's how everything got started. <laughs> I love that. And never in a million years would I have guessed it was that sort of, like you said, circuitous route. And I, sure. I just love hearing those because obviously there's a million ways to succeed and fail in this world, yeah. but you yeah. kind of think like, Oh, someone such as yourself would have thought about this, had this in mind and, and kind of had a plan in place. And I love hearing people that are like, yeah, I hadn't, I didn't even want to do school. And here we are kind of deal. Yeah. And then, <laughs> But even as, as, as I started my PhD program at Duke, I was just surrounded by all these brilliant people and they were the grad students. Sure. So, <laughs> and I just felt like I, I, I didn't really think that I was going to make it. Yeah. I just, I thought this was the best thing to do for now. Let's see how it goes. And I never really had a full vision of success wow. of, you know, what does it mean to, to actually get my PhD and pursue a career? It just, I just didn't have that in my, uh, in, in my vision. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the, the, the moment when I took my, my oral prelims, you know, that's the make or break moment right there. <laughs> I had assumed I had failed because oh. it, it was a three hour, you know, as they are three hour oral and uh, yeah. you just grill for three hours. They send you out in the hallway and they talk about, you know, how you did. And I, and I felt that I had just bonded. I just really, really did. And I was actually certain of it. So I'm in the I'm in the hallway waiting for my my fate to be handed to me, and I'm already thinking about okay, what do I pack first? Um, I've got a pretty small car. I didn't have a lot of belongings. I had a furnished apartment, so I didn't have to worry about moving furniture. Nice. And I'm already strategizing, strategizing as we call it. Um, uh, and so professor came out and said, uh, "Congratulations, you passed." And I said, "What? Huh?" Getting and he goes, no, I wouldn't get it out something like that. So wow. Anyway, so I I just um, I thought, wow, okay, now what do I do? Now I actually have to do, <laughs> actually have to do a dissertation. Like, oh I, no, I, I got to write this well, thing. Because, well, think about it. I mean, if somebody asks you what you're doing, and just saying I'm a PhD student at Duke sounds good enough. Yeah, it's better than saying I'm unemployed. Right. Like, right. Uh, and generally so, speaking, um, no one asks you to really continue after that. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, sure, yeah. So I figured that was good enough for a couple of years or whatever, whatever it took. And, and <laughs> wow. And here you are, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's awesome. So then I found out about the – my first postdoc was at uh, Kansas State University, again, out in Kansas Prairie. And what an amazing place that was. So – Again, I had I've done my dissertation work in a pine forest using prescribed burning, uh, looking at so many aspects of, of uh, things like soil chemistry, mm. stream chemistry. We all we also we also did atmospheric uh, deposition uh, wow. budgets and things like that, uh, all to look at the 
context of, of the, the nutrient response to fire. Mm. And that's where the herb layer came in because we, we looked at both the species compositional response and cover and so forth, but also the, the tissue concentrations. And we, we nice. um, analyzed you know, in nitrogen and phosphorus and so forth and came up with some pretty interesting findings there. Uh, one thing is that season of burn made a, a huge difference as to the response. Uh, that was something that I had not seen before. But uh, anyway, so uh, as an extension, so Kanza Prairie was, it was less of the, um, it, it's basically all herb layer in the sense. Right. It's all basically herb, herb dominated system. Uh, and it, what I found is I learned so much more about my pine forest research hmm. by doing this a similar thing in a different ecosystem. You know, so it gave me a point of comparison that I didn't have before. Interesting. And that was that was interesting. Uh, and did got some you know publications out of that, particularly looking at um, the hydrology of 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 um, of of uh, through fall dynamics and atmospheric deposition processes, things like that. Then I did another postdoc at the University of Virginia, uh, looking at canopy atmosphere interaction in a hardwood forest. And for that, we built um, these canopy towers that went all the way up through the top of the canopy. So you could quite literally walk up the through the canopy and be at the top and look down on the top oh, of, wow. a, of a hardwood forest. It was fo- so amazing. Really was. <clears throat> and the focus on that was on mountain cloud chemistry. So we came up with a way to sample cloud water, not rains, not rain from clouds, but cloud water right from the clouds as they <laughs> go to those high elevation areas. And that was pretty interesting work as well. Um, then, a, then an interesting thing happened. Uh, I don't sell this story to too many people, but uh, the the grant uh, that was supporting me uh, just basically ran out. Hey. And um, I had a big gap and my career was basically temporarily over. Huh. I had nothing. And uh, so I, my wife and I couldn't afford to to uh, stay in Charlottesville. So we temporarily moved in with her parents in Chapel Hill. And that allowed me to reconnect with Duke and Norm Christensen. Wow. It gave me an office where I could be, I could have a sort of a, a courtesy title so I could work on manuscripts and stuff. Huh. And of course, applying to every job that I could find. <laughs> yeah. And just fortunately, I saw something tacked on the wall that, that the University of North Carolina at Greensboro were looking, uh, was looking for a lecturer position. Hmm. So that's what I did. It was a, an annual contract, not non-tenure track. And it was just basically te- teaching your butt off, as I like to say. Yeah. And um, it didn't have any research associated with it, but I was interested in doing research. And I had years before, um, when I was still at Duke, I served as a, a naturalist at a nature preserve in Southern Pines, North Carolina, which is in the region of Longleaf Pond. So I, while I was at UNC Greensboro, I set up these permanent sample plots in this old growth longleaf pine stand. And I cannot tell you how many publications have come out of this study. <laughs> nice. Totally unfunded. Wow. I had one undergraduate research assistant, and she and I measured almost 4,000 trees uh, in, these, in, in these big plots. And um, that, um, that kind of was my foot in the door of longleaf pine work and it's, wow. it's been really fascinating and longleaf pine is an incredible 
species as a species and the ecosystem type as an ecosystem is also very, very interesting. Wow. So that then, uh, that then uh, again, I knew that that was an annual contract. That was not my goal in sure. life to be a lecturer. And uh, fortunately, I had a chair who knew of my long range goal. So he encouraged the research, uh, allowing it to be done and so forth. He, he actually funded me to go to co- conferences. So um, I'm a longtime member of the Ecological Society of America. And um, so um, he allowed me to go to those meetings and funded you know, the travel and stuff. And uh, eventually a tenure track position opened at Marshall University in Huntington, West Virginia. And uh, <laughs> at the time, um, my wife and I had been married a few years, but we didn't have any kids. So it was pretty easy you know, just to pack, pack it up and move yeah. up to Huntington. So I was there for 28 years. Dang. So the urban layer work that you're probably familiar with yeah. is all out of, out of Marshall. Okay. Wow. Up, up, in, up in West Virginia. Awesome. And that was a tenure track position filing, which is good. So <laughs> yes. I was there for 28 years. And um, I basically, and that's so obviously I was a full uh, tenured full professor. But then my wife got this incredible um, offer to, to be the, the presidency of the United Way here in, in Pensacola. Wow. And so um, I just gave all that up so she could come down here. I mean, kudos. And, uh, and so um, I've, I've been at University of West, uh, West Florida ever since then. Huh. But for the last four years. Wow. That's, that's wild. Never. You just don't know about people until you hear from them, right? <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Yeah. It's cool to hear that. It's refreshing because, yeah, the best laid plans of mice and men, as they say, uh, that the life goes awry and you just kind of got to go. And if you've got a partner that's also yeah. a professional, like you just you got to weigh the options. Right. But it's also amazing to hear the sort of dedication to the science, to the understanding of it and what you can pull off with. You know, everyone thinks they have to nail down these massive NSF grants to make anything mm-hmm. possible. And it's like, if, if you're dedicated enough and you got some help, I mean, a lot can happen yeah. and, and boy, it has been fruitful for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, then of course, eventually the NSF grants did come sure. when I was at, when I at Marshall because I had a tenant track position and right. a lab and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, and then that led to the Ferno study. I think that's probably what you're, yeah, if you're familiar with earlier work, that's, that's where I did study and I'm still, um, you know, still publishing work out of that. Awesome. Uh, we're now, because that study was a, a simulated acid rain study. Oh, um, nice. And for my, my part of it was focusing on the nitrogen deposition. <laughs> so the idea behind that was that they, that ever since 1989, there's a whole watershed uh, uh, ecosystem treatment where uh, we add 35 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year uh, with three different deposition periods. So there's uh, 25% is in the spring, 50% is in the summer, and the remaining 25% is in the fall to kind of spread it out a little, little more realistically. Um, and so what we've been looking at for the last three decades is what, what is the whole ecosystem response to excess nitrogen? Yeah. And we've we've come up with some pretty interesting findings. Yeah, that's worth exploring because I've I've that's a, been a big 
big, big part of my research, especially with the right. herb layer is understanding how these communities change when you add extra sure. nitrogen to the system, but you talk to people about it and they're stuck in agriculture mode. They go, oh, nitrogen's good for plants. Why would that be bad? Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're working yeah. in these systems, it's it's hard to get people on board with the different dynamics that happen, say, in a forest understory layer, right? And in fact, what I remember is one of the first papers we published out of the earlier study was was a non-response paper. Those are hard to get accepted. (laughs) No effect. Uh, What? In fact, one of the reviewers said, you know, I really like this paper. I'm I'm sorry that you're going to have a hard time getting it published. (laughs) Come on, man. Help me out here. And so... Uh, so again, the, the treatment started in 1989. This this paper had data all the way up to the first five years. Wow. So five years of adding excess nitrogen, we got no response to the herb layer. Huh. On the other hand, other studies I was familiar with, you saw responses between one and two years. Right. And so um, it, it, made, it made you rethink sort of your paradigm, so to speak, because I had this, all these ideas of of all these rapid changes that we were going to observe. And uh, I realized I was wrong. I tell my students freely about this. I said, I learn much more being wrong than I do being right. So yeah. I really embraced the opportunity to be wrong. Uh, Cause it kind of, it, uh, it's like the agitator in your, in your uh, <laughs> washer. If you don't have an agitator, it doesn't clean your clothes. So nice. You, you got to get things to shake your mind up. Uh, sure. You know, I think, yeah. Examine more possibilities. I mean, the best advice I got early in grad school was don't get attached to your hypothesis or what you think is going to happen. Let the data do it for you. I mean, sure. tell the story. Exactly. right? And so there's two questions here is why would you go in to sort of break down why nitrogen deposition is something we should be mm-hmm. thinking about? So why would you go in thinking there's going to be change on understory herb layer dynamics and, and tangential to that is why in your realm, do you think in this experiment, you didn't find it happening other than okay, nature's are, complex and weird? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The very good question. So there's two, two facets to the first question. The first is just intuitively that, that most uh, terrestrial ecosystems are nitrogen limited more mm. than any of the nutrients. They typically are, are more nitrogen limited. So by adding a limiting nutrient, uh, that's just Eustace von Liebig, that's the law of minimum, that you're going to get a plant response to that. And that you have numerous you know, uh, species in the herb layer that are that are very efficient utilizing nitrogen. And so they're going to, you know, you give them any nitrogen that you can, they're going to grow uh, more rapidly. So you're going to get a, a pretty quick response. And that was the main response I was thinking about, a mm. growth response, not thinking about biodiversity or any of those okay. other issues. It was mostly just not species composition or any of those things. Uh, it was mostly just that there would be a fertilizer effect, and there really wasn't one. So that's the first reason I expected there to be a response. The other was, again, that, that the literature, there weren't a whole lot of other papers, but the ones, the few that were showed pretty pretty sensitive response to the herb layer. But most of those studies are up in the Northeast where deposition is a lot less than at Ferno. Mm. The Ferno gets, at least did, uh, you know, prior to the efficacy of the Clean Air Act, some of the highest rates of nitrogen deposition anywhere in the Eastern United States. Wow. So I think the, the bottom line was a lot of these other studies, of course the most famous one was John Aber's um, Harvard Forest one, <laughs> 
but they added a whole lot of nitrogen to their, their, their low, medium and high. The low was still pretty high. Yeah. So ours was lower than their, than their higher levels. Plus we were getting in ambient deposition, a lot higher levels. So if you look at our treatment as a percent or a function of ambient, it was a lot less of an amount. Interesting. Does that make sense? So yeah. our, what we were using as a single uh, dose uh, or a single level, um, we didn't have the low, medium, and high. We just had you know, a, a representative, what we thought we were sort of projecting into the future of what future increases in deposition would be. Mm. So um, uh, that, that's where, that was where my mind was, that we get some kind of a, a rapid response. Yeah, the fact that we were 35 kilograms, but we were getting up to 15 to 20 in ambient deposition. So the percent uh, additional was much lower in our overall treatment. The other is this, and that's something that we really haven't made much of a, a point of, is that because these were aerial applications, you also had a canopy effect, that mm. the canopy is going to be immobilizing some of that. So not all of that is going to get to to the um, to the forest floor, hmm. and there's a lot of studies now out of out of China where they do the they, they call it canopy versus under understory uh, deposition. So they'll they'll have a paired study where some plots they add nitrogen to the canopy and measure the effect below. Then they others it's they they add the nitrogen below, wow. kind of like the Harvard forest. Wow! So you get out there with your spray can and, and <laughs> do it by hand and again we were doing it either by helicopter or airplane wow so you know that 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 added to another level of, of complexity yeah i think it's interesting when you talk about forests because you have the forest as an ecosystem there is a structure to it there is a microclimate or I mean, really on a big scale, there's a climate to a forest, right? But then there's sure. also the species element of it. And you almost have to tease it apart. It's species creating habitat, but also fostering other species and how they're interacting. Yeah. Sure. And it's really cool to see people sort of breaking that out. I was just reading about canopy interception of just rain and, and the, a function of the epiphyte communities from bryophytes to lichens and everything. And you just go... Sure. My head hurts after a certain point in time. <laughs> yeah. So any more yeah. complexity you can throw into that is telling yeah. a, a more nuanced picture. So when you think about the importance of what's happening here, where is this nitrogen when you're not adding it in an experimental sense? Where is this nitrogen coming from? Because I don't think people readily make that connection in their head that, wait, wait, we're talking about acid rain, but also there's nitrogen deposit. Like where, what's going on there? Well, nitrogen is a non-point source pollutant for for the most part. It'll, it it can come from um, well, basically it's high energy combustion. So that could be power plants, uh, but it also is exhaust pipes. Mm. And uh, so that that's a that's a big part of that. Now, what's interesting is that the Clean Air Act of 1970 initially targeted only sulfur. Oh, because the, the sort of the culprit there was was the so-called acid rain which was always associated with sulfuric acid, a lot less of it associated with nitric acid, at least, uh, at least in terms of the target of, of, the, of the act. Um, it wasn't until later on with some additional uh, uh, clauses or whatever you call them legally, uh, is they um, amendments, I guess, to the act 
um, where they, they they targeted nitrogen oxides. And they still mm-hmm. don't target reduced nitrogen, uh, but it, it's just nitrogen oxides. So those have been coming down quite a bit. There's a little, little bit of lag time, maybe about a 10 year, maybe 20 year or so. But since the since the 90s, uh, an oxidized nitrogen deposition is is coming way way down. Hmm, that's so good. yeah, and so which, what I'm really excited about at Ferno is that is that the the NSF funding uh, that supported the the deposition of nitrogen, the adding of, of nitrogen, is now over, hmm. and uh, and so what we're going to be able to do is take advantage now of it, sort of almost a natural. Um, laboratory is now what happens when nitrogen is no longer, we're, we're going to basically reduce nitrogen deposition by that 35 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year, because we're just not going to add any. Right. And that's been going on since for the last three years. So I can't wait to get back up there in, in maybe five years or whatever huh. and re and reanalyze the herb layer. We still have those permanent plots there because we now, it's, it, it's sort of the, what I didn't mention is after five years, we saw no response. But after about 10 years, we saw a, a, a new trajectory that continued hmm. on to uh, the last paper we published was a 25-year study. So after 25 wow. years, it is profoundly different now. Huh. And, and we've lost diversity, lost biodiversity. Uh, le- lower levels of evenness, lost species, lost evenness. And as a result, um, a completely different herbaceous community wow. just by adding nitrogen for 25 years. And what has happened basically is uh, Rubus, which is blackberry, Rubus alleghaniensis, has just taken over. Now, that's a little bit of a surprise because that is normally, you would consider that a, a, a ruderal species in the grime classification, the capital R, yeah. uh, you usually see... Uh, rubus in disturbed areas, disturbed habitats, or at least certainly on edges. So if you're driving down the road, you see, you know, you might see a bunch of blackberry, uh, you know, sort of area and go, you know, people stop and pick the blackberries, but those are all in high light hmm. uh, environments. So we're seeing this proliferation of rubus in, a, in an intact canopy. Wow. Now, what's interesting is we don't see it flower. So I think what is happening is that the nitrogen, it, it's a high nitrogen requiring species right. to begin with. So it's a, it's a nitrophilus species. Um, and so, it, so the, the, ad, the added nitrogen is supplying the nitrogen it needs to grow and proliferate. But the, the, the fact that we have a, an intact canopy is not giving it the energy to create flowers and fruits. Because we almost never see it flower. Huh. I've seen it a few times, but not not much. Sure, like not a huge reproductive output for something that's that dense. Yeah, yeah. So we get all the agony of because it's highly armed <laughs> as you're walking through there. It's very all these storms and stuff, uh, and we don't get any of the fun of picking wow. blackberries. So yeah, <laughs> blood sweat. That would be a nice trade off. Yeah, right. Know? Like at least we like, got some food here. Yeah. Wow. And so it just, it sounds like the kind of dynamics you were expecting eventually happened. It just took, there was a lag time there for whatever reason, but this is what I've come to expect out of the literature, the predictive sort of response. And even hints I've seen from my own work, although I didn't do any experimental manipulation, but 
why would you know you've kind of hinted at it and and we talk about diversity here and and really this is important especially in forest ecosystems because as one of your great reviews has pointed out when it comes to species diversity biodiversity the thing people want to protect much of that if not most of that is actually in that herbaceous layer in a forest ecosystem right and so that's scary to think about losing that sure so the, the, so the question then going forward, we, we've now been able to document, and, and we're not the only, so many studies have shown that excess nitrogen decreases biodiversity and for similar but sometimes different reasons, but ultimately the, the end result is the same, that you, that you have an, an, a replacement of nitrogen requiring species uh, replacing the, the nitrogen efficient species. Uh, and that's, that's, that's the principal mechanism. Yeah. Um, so again, what, what will be exciting going forward is to see how long, because uh, we're no longer, we're just abruptly cutting the ecosystem off of all of this nitrogen, hmm. is how long is it going to take for the, the blackberry to, 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 to kind of reduce. Wow. And we're, we're, we're poised to take advantage of that because we, we have the permanent plots out there. That's really exciting to hear because you you hear the reports on these studies and, and sort of the visceral response is, oh man, this ecosystem's ruined. What have we done? But yeah. this mm-hmm. idea of if if you know the, the issues largely are man-made, if we can kind of fix our problems, sure. can yeah. we see that? And of course, early days, but that's super exciting to have that long term. And yeah. I can't emphasize the in ecology enough, the need for those long-term data sets. Sure. Yeah. It it is. And then as, as I said. Now, the if you look at the timeline of, of papers coming out of that study, um, the, the first papers, whether it was soil chemistry, whether it was herb dynamics, whatever, all um, let's say if it were a a five year study and we got cut off, our conclusion would be to this day <laughs> that there's no effect. Yeah. Because we if we only have five years of study, then the conclusion is not not much is going on. But now three decades later, we see that there's some profound changes that are going on. Wow. So I, I will also be interested in seeing what's the timeline of, so we, we're getting a lot of nitrate, obviously, it's a mobile anion in soil, really high levels of nitrate in the stream of the treatment watershed. How long is it going to take after we cease the excess nitrogen? How long is it going to take for that nitrate to go, you know, back down? Yeah. And, and, um, we actually published a paper, I think, three years ago, where we speculated on that. And I, my, I suggested what I call a hysteretic model. Hysteresis <laughs> is an interesting phenomenon. It's basically about lag times. That it, it, it sort of says that things do not occur linearly. Uh, and, and it turns out that when we look at, if we plot the cover of Rubus alleghaniensis, it follows right along that wow. S-shaped curve. That, that again, the, the first five years, not much going on. In about ten years or so, it was up here, and then beyond uh, uh, about quarter of a century, it's way up here. So the question <laughs> is, how long is it going to take, or what is the shape of that curve going going back? Yeah. As, as we lower nitrogen. Fascinating. I'm super excited for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll definitely be keeping track of what's going on there but you know this makes me think and and you yourself have done this is is what's going on in other ecosystems and one thing that strikes me of of living in the midwest for as long as i have now is you talk to botanists ecologists that have lived in that area their whole lives some of them are at retirement stage and talking about what they've seen and they go 
yeah, these these areas, even though they're degraded, have largely been species rich up until the last mm-hmm. 15, 20 years. And now it's sure. Solidago canadensis and <laughs> a lot of roos or sumac. And and okay. you know, these moments you go, oh, maybe there's something to that. A lot of synthetic uh fertilizer applications and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff, or like you said, mm-hmm. even burning time. So wow, yeah. Yeah, I think I think innately most ecosystems are fortunately very resilient, mm. and that given a sort of given a chance, I don't want to get too anthropomorphic here, but sure, sure. You know, given a chance to recover, they will recover. I think that's the key is giving them the chance. Right. Yeah, you know, I'll look at I'll look at the, you know the Clean Air Act. We at the very end of my ecology course, we have a whole unit on global. Um, environmental issues and of course we lead up to global warming at the very end mm. um and i point to you know when i first taught that class back at uh when i was at marshall back in 1990 i, I felt kind of bad afterwards because it was such it was a really a doom and gloom <laughs> scenario because yeah. nothing really was looking good for the future right but two things have happened that uh that uh are really noteworthy. In fact, I always say that we can use those as a model for how to solve global warming. The first one is the Clean Air Act of 1970. Uh, the The chemistry of rainfall is, is cleaner than it has been since the 50s, <laughs> all because of the Clean Air Act. And again, those, those further amendments that targeted, so you look at sulfur deposition and nitrogen deposition and acidic deposition, all those three are lower now than in, in, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades. So highly successful legislation. Right. Signed in, by the way, by Richard Nixon, a Republican president. Indeed. Um, and then the other one was the Kyoto, I'm sorry, not Kyoto, uh, the Montreal Protocol that targeted uh, the production of chlorofluorocarbons to mm. uh, to fix the, uh, the, the thinning ozone layer in the stratosphere. That's a good example of international cooperation. Where everybody right. rallies around a, a an existential threat, basically to to you know life as we know it in terms of you know humans, uh, and a and a real a real health concern for global health. Right. And that kind of international cooperation was predicated by a trust in science. <laughs> and really, regrettably, one of the things we don't have now is a public trust and it's a, it's, it's, it's a weapon. It's yeah. a, that it's a strategy that people who don't want a change in the status quo, who are the, sort of the global warming deniers who will say, uh, oh, you know, the, the science is bad. Well, the science is as good as it has ever been or actually better. Yeah. Um, and again, uh, who, who signed us up for the Montreal protocol uh, was uh, Ronald Reagan, another Republican, wow. who said, and this is sort of a loose approximation of a quote, but he basically said, the science is good, let's trust the scientists. Now, where have you heard somebody say that? It's, just, it's been a long time. I don't want to politicize this. No, no, I mean, it's reality. But, and I, I always try to remind people that it's not about necessarily picking a side or anything like that, but this is where sort of the rubber hits the pavement. When it comes now, to I'm making decisions, a side. my sure. side is 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 the protection of life on Earth. That's my I'm side. with you. I'm with you there. That's my <laughs> side too. And, yeah, and again, yeah. it doesn't need to be this tribal idea. It should be something that hey, we're all living things, right? It's it's realizing that what's going on in the forests or in the prairies does affect us. And I, 
it, I see trickles of that as someone who talks maybe, about this stuff. Maybe it should be tribal and to realize we're one big tribe. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. That we're all on the same team. I'm with you. <laughs> and so, I mean, part of this really is, is seeing what's going on, realizing how there's differences among things because everyone wants to generalize and make these sort of like easy stories to tell broad sort of spectrums. But, you know, your career is a really great illustration of just why having benchmarks and different kinds of ecosystems per se is important because like you said, you have something to compare it to. You have a background and understand, okay, well, this kind of happens this way, but over here in the open, this happens this way. And so over this time, I mean, have you seen dynamics play out in similar ways in say a grassland, a pine forest, and then more of a, a mesic deciduous forest kind of habitat? Well, I think it's kind of like yes and no. Some of the basic principles are the same, but, but some important specific, you know, like species composition and life forms and stuff, but that, that can be very, very different. Sure. One of the things I've been interested in, I've, I've interacted with a, a couple of labs over in China, and it, that's been very fruitful in, in terms of, of developing my career because it expands my perspective. I've been to China a couple of times nice. to visit these sites, and we, we've published just any number of papers. Um, and it all began with a paper uh, published in the Journal of Ecology in 2006 that sort of kind of reviewed, it was like an essay review on the general effects of excess nitrogen on herb layer uh, dynamics. And I sort of developed this conceptual model of what should happen under excess nitrogen and why you know, the mechanisms and the components and so forth. And so this young uh, sort of newly minted uh, PhD over there, uh, Dr. Jean Kailu. Uh, he and I have become really good friends through the years. It was 2008, getting this mixed up. I think, it's, you know, 2008. <laughs> and I got this email uh, basically saying, Dr. Gilliam, uh, I've, I've read your paper, I've got some questions and hmm. all this kind of stuff. And, and that's, and so what I've discovered is so he was, they were doing a, a similar type of study as the Harvard Forest, where they were adding nitrogen at 50 and 100 and 150 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare per year and looking at herb layer response. Well, what's interesting there is, so some of the generalizations could be made, but the thing is, is most of the diversity over there is not in the herb layer species, but in seedlings of the woody species. Oh, interesting. So, so the true herbaceous plants you know, you know, you know, like trillium and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, that that's not as big a major a component hmm. of herb layer of, of species. It's mostly seedlings of of the very diverse, as you know, tropical yeah. uh, forests, a very high tree diversity. And so, so you have a whole lot of tree species. You also have a whole lot of seedlings of different species. And the response then was less about losing true herbaceous species and more losing sapling or seedlings wow. of, 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 of trees. So again, kind of yes and kind of no on that, yeah. on that question. That's fascinating. And yeah, I mean, really changing the entire structure and composition of the forest, <laughs> the future forest, right? And that's the other part is always remembering the timescales we're working on here and, and the, the, the effects of now can be yeah. decades, if not centuries down the road sure. and people are going to go, I wonder why it's this way. It's always been this way. Let's study it from this baseline. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. So I think what you were referring to was the 2007 bioscience article. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, you have to throw a lot of stuff out the window. That's, that's basically for just, that's basically for temperate 
deciduous forests. Wow. Or, or not just deciduous, but I mean temperate forests. Right. Uh, when you get into the tropics, it's a, it's a whole new whole new game there. Yeah. And the other thing, uh, think about you know the differences in having a dormant and and growing season versus you know growth year around. Right. Um, most of the ecosystem dynamics are just profoundly different in tropics versus temperate. So I'm I'm always reluctant to make any type of, of um, <laughs> extrapolation into into yeah. different uh, forest types. Yeah, it's it's tough, and and from a communication standpoint, I can get why people get frustrated. But you know, this is why I love having an ecological background. I love botany. I love species diversity and understanding the mm-hmm. weird nuances between them. But when you try to start backing up and thinking about how these dynamics change like what is a community even over what time scale i mean these players are changing mm-hmm. and that's a big lesson to learn in ecology is the players are always different and every one of them has their own niche and weird thing that they've evolved over time and that it's all going to factor into some big messy data sets but it, you gotta mm-hmm. start teasing that stuff apart yeah, yeah. and so in this time i mean is there any you know, particular moment or species that really stuck out to you or like taught you a lesson besides Rubus, you know, donating blood to the forest or anything like that, or you just kind of happy to be out there learning different things in different places. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm just, I'm just in it, it. I don't say this too often to, to students. <laughs> I don't want to mix the the message, but you know, being in the, in the forest is a real spiritual experience for me too. Sure. And you can't measure that. Sure. You can't, you just can't measure that. And, uh, uh, and I've never lost that. Awesome. And I think that's what, as a child, I couldn't articulate. That's what it was. All I knew is that I, I, all I knew is how I felt. Yeah. Which was special being in the woods, that there was something very different about being in the woods as opposed to playing in the playground or the park or whatever, right. or being in, in Lexington when I was out in the state uh, the state parks and so forth and hanging from the great vines and, <laughs> and that, that kind of stuff. Um, and so it also gives you more of a sense of immediacy yeah. of doing things that can help. And when you see there's a threat and what, what do we, what do we do about that? Right. Right. Yeah. It's nice to hear someone say that in your position and, I feel the same way. It was kind of, you know, I never thought about meditation. I never gave it much credence and for no judgment or anything. It just wasn't for me kind of deal or I thought. And then someone once described to me the feeling and what they get into. And I was like, wait, that's what's happening when I'm hiking. Oh, there it is. All right, cool. (laughs) Yeah. I've always said, so this is kind of a little quote I came up with in my own head years ago that, (laughs) the gestation period of an idea is difficult to determine. <laughs> you know, you, your mind takes in things indiscriminately. It's just you know, like a sponge kind of, you see things and whatever, and you might think about things. And when, it, when, when all those things come together and they come out as this new idea, you don't know how long that's been baking. <laughs> you know, you don't know how long it's been in the incubator. I love that. The gestation period kind of thing. Sure. Um, but it's so cool to have it. <laughs> that kind of thing totally Um, and you know the thing i don't think i don't think that anything really new came out of that 2007 article uh it was more of a um just being able to put what we know together in a single in in a single paper Uh, i think that's why it's kind of resonated quite a bit because it does i think it does get cited from time to time uh, but the what, but one of the things I wanted to do is is that number that you know yeah. the you know the eighty percent of biodiversity or whatever 
because that was something that, that again, I think anybody who does work in that area, just, you know, it intuitively, right. It just had never been quantified. Right. So all I, what I did for that was to, to search all of the literature for any studies that had both a, an assessment of overstory and herb layer richness at the same site. That was the main criterion hmm. is to have the plots nested in such a way that you have both together at the same site. And so um, if you look in the, um, in the herb layer book, the Oxford University Press book, uh, there's actually a figure of that uh, that, that, that shows that. And uh, it, it's an interesting, uh, interesting relationship. Now, the other thing is that there tended to be a relationship between uh, overstory richness and uh, herb layer richness. Hmm. Uh, now, there's some really cool exceptions. And one <laughs> is what I do down here is Longleaf Pond, which only has one species in the overstory. Wow. So yeah. naturally occurring, you know, Longleaf Pond, that is one that, that uh, is burned at a, at a typical frequency only has one species in the overstory <laughs> and it literally potentially hundreds in the, in the ground cover. But other than that, uh, interesting kind of relationship. So what I was glad to be able to do is to put a number on something that was just an intuitive notion amongst yeah. folks. That's fantastic. So that's what that was all about. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, when I, again, started my trajectory, someone said, you know, black belt doesn't invent new moves. In karate, they just take yeah. different moves and combine them in ways people haven't th- seen or done. That's before. a good way to put it. Sure. Yeah, and it's always resonated with me. So to hear that, it's like it's the the manifestations of that kind of concept. I I love it, and it's it was impactful, and it continues to be. So thank you for doing it, um, and and sure. for just bringing that curiosity and passion for it, and letting it ring through the science aspect of it. Because sometimes we have to treat those as completely separate things, when in reality. Why else would you be putting up with the stresses of academia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, Dr. Gilliam, this has been fantastic. It is so great to finally sit down and talk with you. If people yeah, want to learn more about your work, where do they go looking? Well, I actually have a, um, uh, a web page through, it's not through UWF. Mm-hmm. And it's because now when I was at Marshall, Marshall allowed you to, to, to kind of host and, and manage your own page. They're just different. Their, their, their policy about uh, uh, online stuff is just different. So sure. when I first got to UWF in 2018, uh, some of my new, co- my then new colleagues uh, told me about uh, Weebly uh, <laughs> that, that allows you to create a web a website. So that's how I did it. And it's just, it's just, you know, www.frankesgilliam.com. It's kind of weird, but yeah. that, that's what they told me to make it. <laughs> it works. It's you. So, so anyway, there, there, there is a web page um, that, that has all of my publications and you, know, you click it and get a PDF. And so it actually has um, um, some of my recent books Excellent. and so forth. Uh, so P- PDFs of all those kinds of things. So anybody who's interested, it's just uh, frankesgilliam.com. Wonderful. And I'll save everyone the trouble. I said, I'll save everyone the trouble looking it up and put the link directly in the show notes. That'd be great. Sure. And and you'll, and you'll see it because it's, it's, it's in my email signature. So if you just look at the emails we've been doing, perfect. It's on there. Wonderful. Well, again, Dr. Gilliam, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. We really appreciate it.
Thank you so much for doing this. You're doing great work. Thank you. Again, it's been an honor to be invited. Much appreciated. Well, in the meantime, hang in there, stay healthy, and I can't wait to see what the next five, 10 years of data start showing. Thank you so much. (laughs) All right. Hang in there. Okay. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Fascinating stuff. I can't emphasize how important the herb layer is, especially in eastern deciduous forests. That is where most of the biodiversity lies and most of the interesting dynamics that are happening. I'm not discounting trees by any means or the forests they create, but boy, understory plants, understory herbs are so vital to ecosystem function and understanding. And I really thank Dr. Gilliam for putting in years worth of effort to try to understand how our activities influence them. Of course, all of the relevant links can be found in the show notes for this episode. Just head on over to indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. And while you're there, consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash indefensiveplants because I could not be doing this without the financial support of my patrons every month. You can also pick up a copy of my book, some customizable merch, or some stickers. Once again, find all of those links at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Just check the show notes for each episode. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.